Welcome to Inflection Points, helping tech leaders navigate a new path to growth. My name is Joe Hine, and in this episode, we speak with Cindy Gallup, ex-chair of BBH New York, thought leader, innovator, diversity advocate, and founder of Make Love Not Porn. She likes to blow shit up. She is the Michael Bay of business. This is one of my favorite interviews for this season, and I think you'll understand why. We discuss the real inspiration to start Make Love Not Porn, how agency leaders should create gender equality, the secret to building disruptive business models, and the importance of sexual values. From SI Partners, this is Inflection Points. My guest today is Cindy Gallup, a world-renowned brand and business innovator who prides herself on blowing things up in the best way possible. She's been described as the Michael Bay of business, known for shaking up conventional models and ushering in transformative change across numerous sectors. Cindy's philosophy is that out of adversity comes opportunity. She's a stalwart advocate for diversity and gender equality, working tirelessly with companies committed to leading the diversity and equality agenda. After starting out in theatre, Cindy has had a distinguished career in advertising, predominantly at the creative shop BBH. Then, in 2009, Cindy launched Make Love Not Porn at a TED Talk, a pro-sex, pro-porn and pro-knowing the difference initiative. It is the world's first user-generated, human-curated sex video sharing platform. Cindy Gallup, welcome to Inflection Points. Thanks, Joe. Thrilled to be here. So we'll dive straight in. You studied at Oxford as president of the Drama Society of your college before moving into theatre, behind the scenes rather than on stage. What originally drew you into the theatre? So I read English at Somerville College, Oxford, but Oxford was where I fell madly in love with theatre because it has a very thriving student drama scene. And I did everything. I wrote, acted, directed, stage managed. But um, something that... um, I particularly enjoyed was I used to draw a lot when I was younger. And so my friends in Oxford sort of pulled me into designing theatre posters for their shows. And from there, you know, it was one step to them asking me to actually promote and publicise their shows. And I really enjoyed doing that. So, you know, I went, all I want to do is work in theatre the rest of my life. And I became a theatre marketing and publicity officer um, at theatres like the Yvonne Arno in Guildford, And then I moved from there to the Everman Theatre, Liverpool. And so I did that for several years. Um, But then I eventually got completely fed up with working 24-7 and earning chicken feed, which is what happens in (laughs) theatre. And I was in Liverpool, and part of my job selling the theatre was giving talks about it. So I gave a talk to a group of women on Merseyside. And afterwards, one of them came up to me and she said, young lady, you could sell a fridge to an Eskimo. (laughs) And I thought, that is the universe telling me something. Time to sell out, go into advertising. So I did. (laughs) Fantastic. And uh, your journey in advertising was meteoric. You started as an account manager at Ted Bates, but ultimately became chairman and president of BBH US. As a woman in advertising in the 80s and 90s, what allowed you to be so successful? So I was basically enormously lucky in my advertising career for two reasons. The first is that I was never sexually harassed in a way that damaged my career. And by the way, I absolutely was sexually harassed, um, but I was not sexually harassed in a scenario where I was managed out of the agency and out of the industry, which has happened to so many women in our industry. 
So that's the first reason I attribute my successful career in advertising to luck. And the second reason I was lucky was I can count on the fingers of one hand the number of female bosses I had in advertising, two. I virtually always reported to men, but I was lucky enough to work for men who saw my potential before I did, wanted me to succeed, championed me, and gave me every opportunity to do so. And that is not the experience of most of the women in our industry. In fact, what they experience is quite the opposite, being held back, kept down, and having their careers sabotaged by men who feel threatened by them. So, you know, I was enormously lucky to work for the men I did at Ted Bates, at JWT, you know, to work for Dave Trott, um, you know, Mike Gold and Mike Greenlees at GGT, and then obviously, you know, amazing role models in John Hegarty, John Bartle, and Nigel Bogle at BBH. Mm-hmm. And what is it you think they saw in you that, that you, you said that, you know, a lot of your bosses saw something in you, they wanted to, to draw that out and allow you to shine? What, what was it they saw? I mean, you know, they obviously saw um, my potential to be really great at what I did in advertising, which was account management. Right. You know, and I just think that's so important because when you believe in someone, they will rise to that belief. And when you are coming up to the ranks in advertising or any other career, you know, you need people to believe in you and to actively seek out opportunities for you. And again, that is not the experience of a lot of women and people of colour in advertising. And as you were going through your journey at BBH in particular, where you spent quite a lot of your time, you had two opportunities to to travel, one to the Far East and one to the US, and, and almost kind of found the business in, in those locations or part of the founding team in, the, in, in those locations. What was that experience like to to take and export a product um, overseas? So how that happened was um, years before either of those expansions, I basically, as a young, thrustingly ambitious account director of BBH, pinned Nigel Bowl up against the wall and went, where am I going in this agency? As you do. And Nigel did the very effective management technique of turning the question back on me. Right. And so he said, Cindy, you decide what you would like to do at BBH and we'll make it happen. And he said, don't be bounded by the realms of the possible. If you want a job that doesn't yet exist, tell us. And I thought, can't say fairer than that. So I went off and I thought about it and I came back and I said, my dream job would be running BBH North America. And I said, I'd be prepared to do that in San Francisco. And I I said that because um, obviously we had the Levi's Europe business and Levi's is headquartered in San Francisco. But I said, but to be my absolute dream job, I would do that in New York. And so Nigel said, and, and, and at the time, you know, we only had the one office in London. So Nigel said, well, you know, it's interesting you say that because we have started talking about America. And so your request is logged. Um, But then um, we had clients in Asia who very much wanted a BBH presence there. So um, BBH's first expansion beyond London was was BBH Asia Pacific based in Singapore. Mm -hmm. And so I went out there as the number two to Simon Sherwood, the CEO, to basically gain experience what it was like to start and run run an office. And then um, so I did that from 96 to 98. And then 1998, I got my dream job, which was, you know, I got my chance 
to come over and start up um, BBH um, here in New York, which began as me in a room with a phone, starting an advertising agency in the world's toughest advertising marketplace, Madison Avenue. So that was um, a lively ride, but um, ended up going pretty well. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, what was it about your time in in uh, in Singapore? What experience did you gain from from being out there that was really important and, and translated to, to coming to New York and allowed you to be successful? A couple of things. I mean, I mean the first is simply the experience of starting up an agency. Yeah. You know, and um, I mean from from ground zero, basically. Um, you know um, how you really, very importantly, um, and wherever you do this ensure that you know you are growing the bbh culture yeah. from you know employee number one employee number two etc which means finding the very best talent in the region to work with you know so rigorous about that um but then absolutely um you know understanding the cultural differences and reinterpreting bbh principles within that you know it's i mean it's basically what we all do with any great brand there are the fundamental truths yep. that are graven in stone. And then, and then there's what you refresh and update on top of that to keep that brand consistently relevant. And, um, and so, you know, when I came to um, New York, I remember, you know, in the fall of 98, which is when we started um, BBH New York, and I had, I don't know, maybe, you know, half a dozen employees. Um, I remember saying to them, our vision is that we are going to be the best agency in America. And I said, you know, Bold. If, great. If, yep, I said, if the chaps down the street at J. Walter Thompson, McCann, Erickson mm-hmm, could hear mm-hmm. me say that now, mm-hmm. they'd be rolling in the aisles, you know, laughing hysterically. Um, but um, the reason it's important we set that as our vision is because then we get to measure every everything we do as does this take us one step close to being the best agency in America. And that is how you absolutely perpetuate a culture of excellence. And then, you know, um, similarly with, you know, the other principle I've outlined, I said to my team also, you know, BBH is a UK agency brand, but here in America, we're an American agency, you know, and so it was also very important about, you know, understanding again, the marketplace in America, and again, you know, reinterpreting and representing the core truths of BBH in a way that would absolutely resonate um, in the US. How did you succeed? Like, was it bringing Britishness to the American market in an American way? You know, what what allowed you to cut through? Yeah, um, it was absolutely not about bringing Britishness, but, uh, because again, you know, I mean, th- that idea would have been laughed out of court in America, mm. which obviously is a far bigger market than the UK. Of course, you know, and the idea that the Brits would come in and have anything to teach, you know, I mean, that th- that is not the way to start an agency in America, um, and I was acutely conscious of that. Um, you know, I went into the market determined to learn. And, you know, what was interesting was we had to win every piece of business, every account in those early years on our own merits. It didn't matter if BBH London already had the business. Okay. You know, we had to pitch for and win Johnny Walker in the US, even though BBH had the global account. We had to pitch for and win the opportunity to launch acts links in the US, even though BBH, you know, had the account. And so, you know, it it, it was absolutely about demonstrating that we were bringing really innovative creativity to the American market that would absolutely deliver, you know, the sales and, you know, the brand image improvements that our clients are looking for. 
Fantastic. And would you say there's an inflection point in your journey in the US where you kind of realized you were going to make it or you, you know, you felt like success had, had been achieved? I mean, the real business inflection point was in 2002, um, so four years after we'd started um, BBH New York, um, Levi's moved their entire US business into us without a pitch. And that was huge. Um, and by the way, I was as surprised as everybody else. And I know everyone thinks I was scheming behind the scenes, um, you know, with with Levi's and, and Robert Hansen, the then, you know, brand president. But, you know, I mean, uh, uh, Rob and I ha- um, had a good relationship. We knew each other from, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd um, headed up the Levi's Europe business before, um, you know, moving back to the US. Um, uh, but, but, but honestly, there had been no machinations. Um, it was just that the business at the time was doing very badly. And so they needed a change from FCB, um, who was their long-standing agency. And so Robert moved the entire business into us and then said to me, and by the way, Cindy, failure is not an option. <laughs> so that was, woo, you know. Put um, the but, pressure on. Yeah, but, yeah but, but, but that basically meant we had to staff up massively. I mean, we doubled the size of the agency. Uh, with that particular account win. And then then the other thing that was really great was, you know, in the same year, um, we won Adweek's Eastern Agency of the Year Award, which is the quickest that any, like, new agency had had gotten to to winning that award. And and that that also kind of helped put us on the map where the industry was concerned. And did you um, take on Levi's? I mean, Levi's have got iconic campaigns, uh, you know, kind of voted best, you know, TV spots of of all time, uh, many times over. And so... Did you feel the pressure in taking on that account and that responsibility with the brand to continue that journey for them? Absolutely. But but that wasn't the pressure. Delivering for the business was the pressure. Yeah. You know, um, and, you know, it's worth pointing out that, you know, the much vaunted TV commercials are the tip of the iceberg because we took on retail, we took on point of sale, we, we took on everything. Oh, wow. I mean, that is a huge retail piece of business. And, and we were involved with every aspect of that. So that was, you know, the really unnerving thing. And where did you begin to take on such a big account? Like, what's, what's, what's the start point? Um, well, obviously, absolutely immersing ourselves in the business. And, and, and you know, the, the good thing was, obviously, within BBH, there was institutional knowledge, mm. you know, because we, we'd worked with Levi's for so long in um, Europe originally, and then, and then you know, to, um, in Asia Pacific, where, where, in fact, you know, I ran the Levi's business across Asia Pacific when I was based out of Singapore. So, you know, that, that there was fortunately an institutional familiarity with mm. the brand. Um, and we were able to bring all that to the work that the, we were then charged with doing for Levi's in the US. Fantastic. But I'd like to roll forward, Cindy, to 2005. And you had a huge change in your life. Mm. What happened and why? Sure. So I turned 45 back in 2005. And um, I'd always thought of 45 as kind of a midlife point. You know, obviously, by the way, the happy assumption one lives to be 90, fingers crossed. But in the couple of years running up to my 45th birthday, you know, I'd always thought on one's 45th birthday is the moment when you pause, you take stock, reflect and review, where have I been? Where am I going? So on February 1, 2005, I duly did that. And that was the point at which I went, oh, my God, I've just worked 16 years for the same advertising agency. 
And obviously, wonderful agency, you know, love BBH to death, you know, cannot say enough nice things about them. They were just amazing to me in so many ways. But, you know, I'd always, I've said to people, I'm not going to work in advertising forever, I'm not going to work at BBH forever, but advertising is a very good industry to work in to come upon what you want to do next. Because mm. you come into contact with so many different sectors, brands, people, you know, clients. And so I guess, you know, I'd always thought that my next big thing would kind of bubble up from the ether one of these days. And there I was at the age of 45, and it hadn't. And I was thinking, it really is time to do something different. And lots of, you know, thought and angsting mm -hmm. ensued. And eventually I went, if I want to review every possible option open to me for what is effectively the second half of my life, mm -hmm. maybe the best thing to do is to put myself on the market very publicly and go, here I am, guys, what do you got? And see what comes. So I took a massive leap into the unknown. I resigned as chairman of BBH New York in the summer of 2005 without a job to go to. And honestly, it was the best bloody thing I ever did in my life. Because I am now evangelical about working for yourself. Right. Too many people make the mistake of thinking that a job is the safe option. It's not. Because in a job, you are at the complete mercy of management changes, industry downturns, marketplace dynamics. I always say, whose hands would you rather place your future in? Those of a large corporate entity who at the end of the day doesn't give a shit about you, or somebody who will always have your best interests at heart, i.e. you. I mean, that is a fascinating thought and so true, but, but quite scary for a lot of people to make that change and become owners of their own destiny. Uh, what, what advice would you give to someone who's, you know, thinking about it or, or scared of it? Sure. So don't be. You know, I mean, I have to say, you know, I'm regularly asked in media interviews, so Cindy, do you have any regrets in your career? And I don't. But the one thing I wish is that I'd started working for myself at Amsite sooner. Because, you know, my generation, you know, um, we grew up in the time when, you know, you went to a good university, got a good degree, got a good job. That was it. The whole concept of entrepreneurship didn't even exist you know, it's why, again, you know, back in my day, people like Richard Branson, Anita Roddick, you know, stood out a mile as, you know, um, obviously these days massively celebrated British entrepreneurs. But, but back in the day, starting your own business and making a success of it was such a rare thing. That's why, you know, they dominated the, the, the business landscape. So um, what I would say to people, and, and, and I especially say this, um, to people in our industry is, you know, um, there is so much that is absolutely dying to be reinvented, you know, and it's very simple. Just take a long, hard look around you. And this applies to anybody in any industry. And this applies, by the way, especially to women, because we have not even begun to see how much reinvention and disruption invasion can happen through the female lens when yeah. applied industries. Interesting. So what I say to everybody is take a long, hard look around you at the industry and identify what you think is missing that should be there. What you would love to make use of that you can't because nobody's built it. What you think you could uniquely bring to the table that nobody else has and then start that.
because that need is absolutely there. And if you can see it, you can absolutely bring the solution to a ton of people. And th there's another angle on this, um, uh, which is, so I, I have a friend, Natalie Molina Nino, who is a brilliant entrepreneur investor. And she, a number of years ago, wrote a book called Leapfrog. And she wrote this book for female entrepreneurs, although I recommend male entrepreneurs should absolutely read it as well. She interviewed a number of female founders, myself included. Um, and she talked to us all about the obstacles we faced and how we'd overcome them. And the book is called Leapfrog because the idea is the entrepreneurs who come behind us can benefit from leapfrogging those obstacles because we give them, them solutions. But the reason I'm sharing this is because there's a great line in that book, which I, I quote regularly. Um, so you know how, you know, we're always encouraged to find what we're passionate about, you know, and build a business around that. And Natalie says, forget passion, find things you want to punch. <laughs> and so I would say to anybody in the industry, look around you and identify what makes you red hot with rage. What enormously frustrates you every single day and build a solution to that. It's, uh, it's passion in a very different form. Cindy, you have a great tagline. I blow shit up. I am the Michael Bay of business. Where does this come from? How does it manifest itself? That comes from many years ago, I was in a meeting with some potential consultancy clients. And I was talking to them about my approach to business consulting, which is what I do to support myself alongside entrepreneurship. And so I said to them, you know, I consult very selectively only for clients and brands who want to change the game in their particular sector. Mm -hmm. So you come to me for radical, innovative, groundbreaking, transformative. I don't do status quo. And then lightheartedly off the cuff, I said, I like to blow shit up. I'm the Michael Bear business. And everyone <laughs> laughed. And I left the room and I thought, actually, that's a really good way of summing up what I do. So I've been using it as my tagline ever since. But the key thing, Joe, is that I use it not as a bit of creativity, a bit of whimsy, a bit of fun. I use it entirely deliberately because I'm a great believer in be your own filter. When I characterize what I do in that way, it attracts to me the people who want what I do. It repels the ones who don't. And I want to repel the ones who don't because they're a waste of time, effort and money. So be your own filter. Fantastic. And how do you bring that to your work? How do you embody that in your sort of doctrine? Basically, you know, I can guarantee to provide a radically innovative solution to any business problem anyone chooses to hit me with. Fantastic. That's because that's what we do in advertising. You know, one of the things that frustrates me is, you know, our our industry is massively underestimated in, in, in the popular imagination. You know, we don't get enough credit for the things we have to be good at, to be good at advertising. Because to be brilliant at what we do, we have to be masters of human psychology. You know, um, you, you know razor-sharp analysts of consumer insights. You know, and, and then to use all of that to, in the most creative way possible, you know, deliver commercially sound strategies and work that will absolutely grow our clients' businesses. You know, I, I say to people that, you know, my background is 38 years working in advertising. 
I've spent 38 years working in the business of getting people to do things they originally had no intention of doing. And that's a phenomenal art. Yeah, it is. I have to say, um, I've been in the you know advertising world um, for about 10 years, uh, maybe a bit longer, 15, but it's uh, the minds you meet are among the best in the business. Mm. And it's the logic and the creativity added together and, and the power of, of, you know, the planner and the, and the suit and the creative and, and the way they, they combine to, to create brilliance, quite frankly, is, um, you know, it humbles me. Mm. So I, I want to step back a bit to something that you touched on at the beginning of, of our, of our conversation um, and something you're incredibly passionate about, you know, women's rights and diversity in business. I would, some would say progress has been made. Few would disagree that more needs to be done. Is there a pivotal moment um, when your perspective on diversity and, and equality sort of shifted? Yes, there is. And let me just preface it, first of all, Joe, with the reason why nothing in our industry is changing. That's because at the top of our industry, as a top of every industry, is a closed loop of white guys talking to white guys about other white guys. Those white guys are sitting very pretty. They've got their enormous salaries, their gigantic bonuses, their big pools of stock options, their lavish expense accounts. Why on earth would they ever want to rock the boat? Oh, oh, they have to talk diversity. They have to appoint chief diversity officers. They have to have diversity initiatives. They have to say the word diversity a lot, especially in public. Secretly, deep down inside, they don't want to change a thing because the system is working just fine for them as it currently is. It's like they'll joke about the light bulb. How many therapists does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but the light bulb has to really want to change. And in our industry, the light bulb does not really want to change. So that's why change is not happening and will not happen, and why I encourage change outside the system. But this is my inflection point in viewing this. Um, in a different and much more fundamental way. So in October of 2017, the New York Times published their expose of Harvey Weinstein's decades-long campaign of sexual harassment and abuse. Mm -hmm. And while the Me Too movement existed before that, that really brought it to the fore. I had been speaking out about sexual harassment in our industry for years before that. And I spoke about it publicly because nobody else would. And so for years, I had had women in our industry writing to me with horrific stories. And I'd always try to encourage them to tell those stories to the media. And nobody ever would because they were quite understandably terrified. So when in October 2017, the Harvey Weinstein story broke, I thought maybe now the time has finally come. And so I posted on Facebook and I said, Women of the ad industry, it's time to expose the Harvey Weinsteins of our industry. Email me and I will connect you with trusted reporters in our industry who, who can break these stories because the time has come, as these brave women have with Harvey Weinstein, to name names. And honestly, Joe, you know, I kind of did that um, without much thought. I, I just thought now the Harvey Weinstein accusers are coming to the fore. Maybe now I can finally get your name names. I was not prepared for the avalanche that hit my email inbox and proceeded to overwhelm it for the next few months. And 
the avalanche, not just from the US where I'm based, but from the UK and from women in the ad industry and men in the ad industry all around the world. And I was so horrified by what showed up in my inbox that um, a a few weeks later, um, at the end of October, beginning of November, I was due to speak at the 3% conference um, here in the US. And the 3% conference was so called because when Cap Gordon, the founder, started it now 11 years ago, um, only 3% of all advertising agency credit directors were women. 97% were men. So she started it to change that. Yeah. Because obviously in an industry whose primary target is women, as the primary purchasers and influence purchase everything, that's ludicrous. Anyway, um, so um, I have given the opening or the closing keynote at the 3% conference um, every year of the 10 years it ran. And so I was scheduled to speak there. And at the last minute, I rewrote my talk to make the first half of it about what had shown up in my inbox in the preceding three weeks. And I said to the audience, I always knew it was bad, but I never knew it was this bad. And, and, and you know, honestly, for several months, I was incredibly depressed because I wake up every morning and I would know that when I opened my email inbox, I was going to see the most horrific sagas laid out. It was, it was, it was a really, really grim time. I mean, it was grim for the people who'd suffer this, but it was also grim hearing about it. And, and by the way, I recommend to our listeners, if you go to YouTube and you search Cindy Gallup 3% Conference 2017, it's a talk called Where the Money Is, um, which unfortunately got relevated to the back part of the talk um, because that was all about redesigning business models in our industry originally. Um, watch the first 15 minutes because I said to the audience, what I've seen in my inbox the past three weeks has completely changed my own thinking because for years I've said, the single biggest business issue facing our industry is diversity and the lack of it. I said, it's not. The single biggest business issue facing our industry and every other industry is sexual harassment. And that is because sexual harassment manages women out of the industry. Sexual harassment derails women's careers, destroys women's ambitions, crushes women's dreams. And what that means is that sexual harassment keeps out of leadership and influence the female leaders who would make equality, diversity, and inclusion happen. And that's why sexual harassment is and continues to be, up to the present day, the single biggest business issue facing our industry and every other industry. Wow. You have a philosophy of talk through action. Can you touched on this velocity and, and like, I guess most importantly talk to agency owners and business leaders what, what should people be doing to support change in this area sure so uh, so my philosophy is communication through demonstration don't say it be it and do it and our industry is very very bad at doing that so it's really simple to completely eradicate sexual harassment from our industry by doing two things. The first is sexual harassment magically disappears completely in workplace environments at every level of a company where the employees are 50-50 or preferably more female versus male. When you have an equal number of women and men, 
in the workplace at every level of the company, ideally more women than men, because again, our industry is one that targets women with advertising, um, sexual harassment disappears. And that is because in a gender equal environment or a female dominant environment, there is no longer the implicit bro endorsement all around you. It's okay to behave like that. And equally, in a gender equal working environment where men are interact, interacting with women as professional equals every day and seeing how brilliant women's insights, creativity, contributions are, men cease to see women in one of only two roles, girlfriend or secretary. So that's action number one. Make sure that your agency, your company at every level is gender equal or more female than male. And the second thing you do to eradicate sexual harassment is you bring sex into the office. And what I mean by that is, um, so another one of my philosophies is that everything in life and business starts with you and your values. So I regularly ask people this question, what are your sexual values? And nobody can ever answer me because we're not taught to think like that. Our parents bring us up to have good manners, a work ethic, sense of responsibility, accountability. Nobody ever brings us up to behave well in bed, but they should, because in bed, values like empathy, sensitivity, generosity, kindness, honesty, trust, respect are as important as those values are in every other area of our lives where we're actively taught to exercise them. So when I say bring sex into the office, what I mean by that is every agency leader who talks about the values of that agency brand, about their company culture, include sex, include good sexual values and good sexual behavior as part of your expectation of employees, as part of your expectation of the company culture you build, as part of the gold standard values that you expect everyone in your agency and your company to live up to. Because when you talk openly about the fact that this is a company that, you know, as opposed to, you know, the, the current corporate speak, we have zero tolerance for, and I can tell every holding company saying that at the top level, that the people in your agencies on the ground talk to me, and I know damn well there's a shit ton of tolerance for that crap, okay? Um, what I mean is explicitly announce that good sexual values and good sexual behavior are part of your company values and explicitly announce you expect employees to abide by that. Do you know that makes sense to me? Because we compartmentalize sex and it's taboo often, uh, but yet it is a basic instinct and something that people act upon. So you've got a very powerful part of your instinct and life that that isn't bound by or talked about in the structures in the way that, that you do, and yet is hugely impactful for for you and people and your reactions and how that can impact other people. Yeah. That's fascinating. And I mean, look, it's such an important topic. I, I could talk for longer with you on it, but I, I do want to move on to what's on your t-shirt, Make Love Not Porn, the website you started in 2009. It promotes open and healthy discussions about sex as we've just had and um, you know, is there a specific incident that inspired you to kind of start the the website and 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 go on this journey? So, you know, make love not porn is a complete and total accident. 
Okay. I never consciously intentionally set out to do anything I very bizarrely find myself doing now. <laughs> um, and it was certainly, you know, I would say the biggest inflection point in my life in, in that context. So it came about because I date younger men who tend to be in their 20s. And 15, 16 years ago, I began realizing through my direct personal experience dating younger men, that when we don't talk openly and honestly about sex, porn becomes sex education by default in not a good way. So I found myself encountering a number of sexual behavioral memes in bed. I went, well, I know where that behavior is coming from. <laughs> I thought, gosh, if I'm experiencing this, other people must be as well. I didn't know that, Joe, because 15, 16 years ago, no one was talking about this. No one was writing about it. This was me in isolation as a naturally action-oriented person going, I'm going to do something about this. So um, 14 years ago, purely as a little side venture, kind of as a public service announcement, <laughs> I put up on no money a tiny clunky website at makelovenotporn.com that in its original iteration was just copy. The construct was porn world versus real world. Here's what happens in the porn world. Here's what happens in the real world. I had the opportunity to launch Make Love Not Porn at TED in 2009. I became the only TED speaker to say the words, come on my face on the TED stage. <laughs> yeah, Six yeah. Yeah. The talk went viral as a result. And it drove this extraordinary global response to my tiny website that I had never anticipated. Thousands of people wrote to me from every single country in the world, young and old, male and female, straight and gay, pouring their hearts out, telling me things about their sex lives and their porn watching habits they'd never told anyone before. And I realized I'd uncovered a huge global social issue. And so I then felt I had a personal responsibility. I had to take Make Love Not Porn forwards in a way that would make it much more far reaching, helpful and effective. And so I turned it into a business designed to do good and make money simultaneously, which is what I believe all business should be, by the way. And so, and so, you know, that is why today, Make Love Porn is the world's first and only user-generated, 100% human-curated social sex video-sharing platform. So we are pioneering a whole new category on the internet that has never before existed, social sex. We're kind of what Facebook would be if it allowed you to socially, sexually self-express, which it doesn't. The way to think about us is, if porn is the Hollywood blockbuster movie, Make Love Not Porn is the badly needed documentary. We are a unique window onto the funny, messy, loving, wonderful sex we all have in the real world. We are socializing, normalizing, and destigmatizing sex, bringing it out of the shadows into the sunlight, making it easier to talk about, to promote consent, communication, good sexual and behavior. We are literally sex education through real world demonstration. Uh, and I, I think that's fabulous. Um, I have two young children and one of my fears is um, how they grow up and what their influences are in, in this area. And, you know, I think it's so important to, to get the conversation right. And I can see absolutely where you're going with it. Mm. Um, Cindy, thank you. So great to hear your story. I've got one final question that I ask all my guests. Uh, after looking back and, and talking about um, your achievements over the years, I'd like to look forward. What is exciting you about the next 12 months? So what is exciting me is for the past 14 years, I've been parallel pathing two things, working to build Make Love Not Porn and working to change the business and cultural context around it. Because when you have a truly world-changing startup, 
you have to change the world to fit it, not the other way around. I face a host of challenges every day building a sex tech venture. Every piece of business infrastructure, other tech startups take for granted. I can't, the small print always says no adult content. And so what really excites me is that finally after 14 years, I'm seeing the barriers I'm making fall falling. And so what excites me is I'm currently raising funding to scale Make Love Not Porn, to build out brand extensions, including the zero to 18 and beyond sex education expansion. And I'm finally talking to investors who get it and who want to fund what we're doing. And so I'm looking forward to um, doing what in my current investor deck is a quote from my original investor deck all those years ago, um, change the world through sex and make a huge amount of money doing it. <laughs> I wish you the best of luck. Thank you. And before you go, I have a question for me. I've always wanted to ask you, how did your apartment in New York end up being in Biggie's Nasty Girl video? Oh, um, because the <laughs> location manager um, came to our building, looked at another apartment above me, which wasn't right, but they told me about the black apartment. And so that's that's how that, that came to happen. <laughs> Absolutely fabulous. It's a, it's a beautiful apartment. Congratulations. Thank you. Cindy, thank you ever so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Inflection Points is a production of SI Partners. SI Partners is a leading corporate finance boutique for agencies, consultancies and technology providers at the forefront of the digital economy. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Joe Hine. And you've been listening to Inflection Points.